Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Private Equity Masters is brought to you by PitchBook. Deciding where to allocate capital is challenging for even the most seasoned fund managers. The margin of returns between a good and great investment can be wide, especially in the private markets, so you need access to the best fund data available, and that's PitchBook. 93% of PitchBook's clients say their fund data is better than any other provider. PitchBook also publishes first-rate research on all aspects of investing in the private markets. You can explore PitchBook's data and research today by signing up to get free limited access. That's free limited access to the largest database of private market intel. To sign up, visit pitchbook.com slash capital allocators and see how PitchBook data can help give you that extra edge. Private Equity Masters is also brought to you by ILPA, the Institutional Limited Partners Association. ILPA is dedicated to engaging, empowering, and connecting limited partners to maximize their performance on an individual, institutional, and collective basis. It also hosts Voices of Private Equity, a podcast featuring leading voices from private markets that delves into the most pressing issues facing investors today. In its first season, the podcast held candid conversations that revealed each guest's personal journey in the industry. Rate, review, and subscribe to Voices of Private Equity today. Today's show is sponsored by iConnections. iConnections' software platform seamlessly connects managers and allocators for virtual meetings, giving managers the ability to subscribe and share information with allocators who can efficiently select and meet managers all on one platform. The scalable technology powering iConnections can be used for bespoke events by managers, allocators, and service providers. Visit iConnections.io to learn more. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting CapitalAllocators.com. Over the last decade or two, no asset class has generated as much interest and investment dollar returns as private equity. This eight-part miniseries, Private Equity Masters, is a set of conversations with some of the longtime leaders in the space. We'll hear their stories, those of their firms, and their perspectives on this all-important area of the capital markets. Our Private Equity Masters mini-series concludes with Chuck Davis, the CEO and Chairman of the Investment Committee at Stonepoint Capital. Stonepoint has invested $21 billion across 135 businesses, all in the financial services industry. 
Prior to joining Stone Point's predecessor entity at Marsh McLennan 23 years ago, Chuck was a partner at Goldman Sachs, where he spent the prior 23 years, culminating in serving as head of investment banking services worldwide. Our conversation covers Chuck's time at Goldman Sachs, his transition to private equity, and the formation of Stone Point Capital. We then turn to the firm's multi-year outbound targeted search for the best executives in financial services, work with portfolio companies, activity in the asset management sector, and management of StonePoint. Before we get going, I wanted to let you know that we're enrolling the first cohort of Capital Allocators University, a live online course that starts on September 21st. Rahul Mudgal and I put together a course to help train investment professionals on the skills they need to succeed at the most senior levels of their organizations, but that aren't typically taught in investment curriculum. We'll be joined by an all-star cast of past guests on the show to help you learn foundational skills like time management and public speaking, and value-added ones like decision-making and networking. Hop on the website and click University in the menu to learn more. Please enjoy my conversation with Chuck Davis in the final episode of Private Equity Masters. Chuck, thanks so much for doing this. Good to see you, Ted. Why don't you take me back to your early education? Happy to. By the way, today's story is about Stone Point Capital, and it's really a story about team and collegiality and cooperation and gang tackling. So I'm happy to talk about myself a little bit, but really Stone Point Capital is really very much a collective effort of a lot of people. I was very fortunate to grow up in a small town in Vermont. My father was a banker and he started as a teller and worked his way up to be the CEO. And I had the privilege of going around with him to see his clients. And I learned so much from him because he would tell me, here's who we're going to go see. Here's what he's like. And then I would watch him talk. I'd be 8, 10, 12, 14 years old. And then after we'd leave, he would explain to me what just happened. And I learned a couple things that were just invaluable later on in business life. One was there are easy, good businesses and there are tough difficult businesses. And some of the difficult businesses my father dealt with were farming, contractor, construction people, one location restaurants. And then there were some really good businesses that seemed to grow and develop. But the second thing I learned from him was the people are even more important than the business. There were many people that he backed in tough businesses that did well. And there were many people that were in good businesses that were not capable and they didn't do well. So those lessons were just invaluable. When you ask about my early education, I was not a good student. My best friend's father called me Hurricane Charlie because I couldn't sit still and I couldn't (laughs) concentrate. And that meant being disruptive in class and also not being able to do homework at night. So I had a very bumpy academic career. And so how does someone go from having that type of academic career to what ended up being a long tenure at Goldman? That's a good question. I think it was, part of it was maturity. Part of it was metabolic makeup, slowed down a little bit. And I think most of it was, I discovered that when I liked something, I could concentrate and be good at it. When I didn't like something, I had a hard time not being bored or not getting uncomfortable and being unable to focus. And when I found Wall Street and finance and business and numbers and the same competitive environment that I found on athletic fields, which I loved sports, then my interest became very much a passion and I was able to concentrate and focus and hopefully uh, (laughs) prevail through some challenging experiences. So you had a long run at Goldman, and I'd just love to hear a little bit of some of the highlights of your experience that ultimately led to Stone Point and what you learned along the way. I think I was very lucky to select Goldman because in the mid-70s, they were not the firm. They became in the 80s and 90s, and I can't say I had any clairvoyance. I just felt like there's a buzz, there's a vibe, there's an energy at this firm that doesn't seem to exist at some other firms. The rigor at Goldman and the 
creative tension and the desire to be successful and the competitive nature of the business was extraordinary. But the internal camaraderie at that firm back when it was small and private in the 70s and early 80s really was no different than a great sports team. And it was a huddle you wanted to be in. It was a team bus you wanted to ride on. And I just learned so much from the people there who would take you under their wing and mentor you. And then from the clients. And the great thing about investment banking, particularly back then, there were no analysts, there were no computers, everything was done by hand. The young people got to go to the board meetings and got to be involved with the CEOs and CFOs on the most important decisions they made. So for years and years, getting those reps and that cumulative knowledge of how people make decisions and then watching those decisions play out favorably or unfavorably was just an amazing experience. And because the firm was so small, everybody at that time got an enormous amount of exposure and reps to those kinds of situations. And so it was invaluable. And I must say, I, I loved it. I loved virtually every minute of my 20 plus years there. What were the breadth of roles that you played in those 20 plus years? Well, you go to a Goldman now, you're in a product group, an industry group, or a region. Back then, that didn't exist. And so there was a nascent merger department. There was no capital markets group. And basically, you worked on all types of transactions for all industries and all companies and all geographies. We didn't have a big international business in the beginning, but eventually all of us got involved in lots of different things. Everyone tended to find areas of specialization and focus. One of the jokes was you do one deal in a sector and you know something, you do two deals and you're an expert and you do three deals and you're the dominant player in it. And so my experience evolved from all types of companies. I tended to spend most of my time in the United States, which most people did back then. And eventually there were certain sectors that I felt more comfortable in than others. And once you switch from the corporate finance department, because Goldman separated relationship management from transaction execution. So after spending four years executing transactions, I was moved to the new business department where my job was to build relationships and bring all the products and services of the firm to bear to meet the client's needs. Then your role becomes quite different. And that was a role I was better suited for in many ways than, than actually doing the blocking and tackling of the technical aspects of the deals. I was wondering if you could hearken back to an example of something that was, maybe you'd call it inefficient or area of opportunity that you saw back then that today you might look at and say, oh, well, of course, that's how you would pursue an opportunity. Well, one of the brilliant things that Goldman Sachs did, and John Whitehead was the father of it, was separating relationship management from transaction execution and actually having a group that was called the New Business Department cold calling companies. And no one did that back in the 50s and 60s. You had a relationship with your banker and you came to Wall Street and asked them how to finance your next capital expenditure. Goldman was actually cold calling. And the fact that the firm was proactively outbound, targeting, searching for clients really was a model that moved the firm from a good firm to a firm that really had a spectacular multi-decade run. And the lessons from that at a stone point where we have a strategy of a proactive multi-year outbound targeted search and it's kind of slow twitch muscle investing because you spend years studying a sector meeting people interacting with them learning adding value developing relationships before you ever write a check goldman's model was the same in the sense that you called on companies for years and years and then all of a sudden they got something to do and you were the last one to call on them, or they had your name and number, or they felt comfortable with you. And Goldman started getting more and more and more business and competitors are wondering how Goldman was doing it. And a lot of it had to do with a multi-year relationship development plan, 
which was very expensive because you had duplication of functions on Wall Street. Most people went out, found a piece of business and then processed it themselves and went to their boss for their bonus. Goldman divided the clients up, gang tackled the opportunity, specialized quicker than others. And I thought that model really fit for private equity, which really is the way Stone Point is set up today. So after this long run at Goldman, what was the impetus for you leaving? I was one of the happiest partners at Goldman Sachs, and I definitely could have stayed there for my whole life. And I believe that in many ways I was too in love (laughs) with Goldman Sachs. I was in my mid-40s, and I just had this feeling that I wanted to do something else. I didn't know what it was, and I didn't know that I'd be going into private equity, but I just thought I got to step back and figure out what I want to do, where I want to live, and reset. And there was no trigger to that, and I couldn't explain it to people closest to me. They were wondering what I was thinking. And I ended up spending three and a half years as a senior advisor working on a handful of projects for Goldman. And during that three and a half years, Steve Friedman, who had also left the partnership at Goldman, he had run the firm, and Nick Zerbeeb, who was an analyst that had rotated out of the three-year analyst program. The three of us had a little virtual firm. We named it Catamount Capital, the Vermont state animal, believed to be extinct, but there were three catamounts walking around. And we were doing a lot of really interesting deals with our own money and without any sort of resources beyond ourselves. And we did that for the late 1995 up until 1998 and it was going well, we were having fun, but we were thinking it would be good to have offices and computers and someone to get you a cup of coffee and third-party investors and the like. And that's how we ended up combining with Marsh and McLennan to take on the Trident funds. You had been involved with lots of different companies, cross sectors. How did you decide to focus on financial services? We didn't really make that decision. It was kind of made for us in the sense that Marsha McLennan had a private equity firm that they owned jointly with JP Morgan. And it was set up to basically put capacity into the property casualty insurance market after a hurricane or an earthquake or there was a dislocation. And they had set up de novo companies in the 80s called ACE and XL in Bermuda. And then they set up a company called Mid-Ocean after Hurricane Andrew in 1992. And then in 1994, they said, why don't we have a fund? Because it's taking us a year to raise the money and set up a company. If we had a fund, we could address the dislocation, the imbalance quickly. So they set up a fund called the Trident Funds. And it was a $667 million fund. And that fund was mostly invested by the time we came in. So Steve and Nick and I joined, and we joined with the understanding that Trident had a one-trick pony. It was the best trick in in the rodeo by far. They were the best provider of capital to the property cash insurance industry, but there were many, many periods of time when that was not necessary, when the wind didn't blow, the earth didn't move, rates were not compelling. So we made a deal with Marsha McLennan that we would take on the Trident funds if they would let us broaden to all financial services. So we could do bank deals, credit deals, processing, brokerage, distribution, claims adjusting. They were excited about that. And we joined. And that's really how the financial services segmentation developed. It came from a pretty narrow product and was broadened from the 1998 period. We were very lucky when we joined that Jim Carrey was here, had been here briefly, and he's spectacular and partner today. And we went out and recruited David Wormuth. And so David and Jim, Steve and Nick and I really set the strategy in 1998, 99, 2000 that has basically made us what we are today over 23 years. We were happily working inside of the Marsh and McLennan network until 2004. 
when Elliot Spitzer sued Marsha McLennan for bid rigging, which we had nothing to do with. And so we were given the opportunity to spin out, take the track record, the team, the investors, and the platform, change the name from MMC Capital to Stone Point Capital, and take the ownership of the firm. And that was, in many ways, a wonderful thing because we now controlled our own destiny. And Marsh was a great partner, and we certainly had a good experience with them. And they're good friends to this day. But that was a pivotal event in the development of Stone Point Capital. So I want to dive into how you've approached investing in this space. And so let's start with, you have this focus on financial services. How did you take what was initially just this property casually investment business and then decide how you're going to tackle a pretty big space? Well, again, a lot of debate and discussion among Steve, Jim, Nick, David, and myself, particularly with others. And by the way, many people have now contributed enormously to the evolution of that question because we continue to evolve and the segments and the sectors that we cover, which are now 70 different subsectors inside of 12 general areas, that has evolved. And basically, we started with a number of key concepts. And I'll just give you a handful of them. And obviously, this is an oversimplification. We wanted to figure out what we would go after. And we wanted to start this proactive multi-year outbound targeted search. We really wanted to specialize because it seemed like private equity was like investment banking, where it was going into specialization and generalist funds like general practitioners in medicine and the like we thought the industry was going to evolve, so we wanted to specialize in financial services broadly defined. We definitely put enormous emphasis on the owner-operator. Again, when I look at my dad and the way he backed owner-operators, that was really critical to us. We decided that we wanted to hire and train and mentor and build from within because people that come laterally have a different way of doing things, and we wanted to have this elongated bass backwards investing where you do your homework ahead of time and you really know what you want to do. And then when the opportunity comes, you can move instantly. But when you see an opportunity that you haven't done the multi-year study of, then we're pretty plotting about that. And we wanted to do it in a culture that was really caring and sharing and teamwork and camaraderie oriented. So everything at Stone Point from the compensation structure, to the sharing of the carry, to the way businesses are assigned, to the fact that every deal we try to do has a devil's advocate. Everyone here feeds from the same trough. Everyone's in this together. And because all these segments may be uncorrelated in terms of whether they're interesting to invest in, they're very correlated in terms of the regulatory environment they're in the clients they serve, and the markets. So the knowledge that we have in all these sectors is very relevant to the sectors alongside of it. So it's very important that people share information with each other. And I think it was not that premeditated that we chose financial services broadly defined. And when you add benefits brokerage and workers' comp insurance underwriting to financial services, which it clearly is. And then you end up with third-party administrators, managed care services. You get into healthcare. We're not investing in the manufacture of defibrillators, but we are in healthcare from an indemnity and benefit standpoint. That's about 25% of the economy. And it's wonderful that all of that relates to every other part of it. Whereas if you have a sector fund like energy and oil goes from 20 to 100, you're brilliant. If oil goes from 100 to 20, it's hard to get out of the way of that. So we're very fortunate that we have the biggest industry sector in the economy. And the way we define it, it really is a robust area for opportunity. And I give Jim, Nick, David, Steve, and a lot of people here enormous credit for how we've built out the concentric circles of those subsectors and we're doing deals today that were in 
parallel universes to the things we were looking at 20 years ago. And that has added enormously to our capability and flexibility of where we put our clients and our investors' money. I'm curious about this research process coming before the deal. There are 12, 12, 13 sectors, 70 subsectors. What is that process? What are you doing to prepare for when these opportunities come up? Well, everyone here, there's about 60 investment professionals supported by a tremendous team that includes about 120 people in total in finance and accounting and legal and compliance and IT. The investment professionals are all assigned to a small handful of these subsectors or sectors. And their job, we joke that we do in three or four or five years what McKinsey does in three to five weeks. We basically go out, we call on all the companies, we go to the conferences, we read the newsletters, we meet with the competitors, the suppliers, the customers, the McKinsey consultant that knows the business and everyone we can meet with. And we are looking for what we call the 20-foot pole vaulter. And the 20-foot pole vaulter, Ted, is if you came from Mars and I took you to a high school track meet and you saw some kid pole vault 12 feet, I think you'd be blown away. How did that kid go full speed down a track with an enormous pole, stick it in a little hole, bend it, and jump his whole body over twice as high as his height? And I would say to you, Ted, that's great, but that kid struggling to make his high school track team, the world record is over 20 feet. When we meet an owner-operator in one of these segments, and let's just say for argument's sake, there's 20 competitors in the sector, when we meet him or her, they know more than we do about their business. And we don't know if they're a 12-foot pole vaulter or a 16-footer or a 20-footer because they're impressive because everybody that runs a business knows a lot about that business. We have to call on every single one of them, line them up against each other, ask them about each other, talk to their customers, suppliers, and go to the conferences and read the newsletters and study the business and try to figure out who is the best of breed in this sector. Who is the 20-foot pole vaulter? And often in these 70 subsectors, we never find a 20-foot pole vaulter. And we're talking about an individual, but great individuals, great leaders bring posses with them. So it's really about the team, but we're looking for that team. Once we find the 20-foot pole vaulter, then the work begins. How do we get into business with this 20-foot pole vaulter? And there's basically three simple ways. If he or she owns the business, we try to get him to sell us 30, 50, 70%. We don't want to buy 100%. And we don't care whether we control the company or the management does, really, because the management controls the destiny of the company. We're there to help. We can make a good situation better. We can't make a bad situation good. So if they own the business, we try to get them to share the ownership. If they work for a big company, we hope that at some point their business will be sold and we can buy their business from the big company. And we've bought over 20 companies from Citibank and Travelers and Swiss Re and all the big financial institutions. The third way is they don't control the company. They don't own it. It's not available. Maybe they've sold and they're on the beach. We will do a de novo startup. And that's an unusual tool to have in your toolkit because most private equity firms won't do that. We don't think of that as venture because we call them restarts. People are going to do again what they've already done successfully once. So we've done over 50 startups. And people say, why did you do a startup there? And the answer is that's where the 20-foot pole vaulter was. Or the legacy issues in the existing companies are ones we don't want to take on or to buy into the business costs too much. So it really is a function of working with that 20-foot pole vaulter and his or her team. How do we get into business together because they are the reason we're successful. If we pick them correctly, and again, you can't do that if you don't kiss all the frogs and spend years and years. So our investment teams are out there on the road all the time, bringing management teams through so the senior investment committee folks meet them, keeping us current on these sectors so that when the opportunity comes, we can move on a dime because our investment committee doesn't meet and vote on something 
that they haven't been talking about and learning about and being actively involved in for years and years in the sector and for months and months and often years and years in the actual company. During COVID, where you couldn't meet management teams, we did 17 deals. We put $6 billion to work in 17 companies. And we knew those management teams on average for over nine years. And we knew those sectors and studied them on average over 15 years. So we didn't have to do a deal over Zoom with people we didn't know. We were dealing with people and they were more likely to choose us because they knew us and they were more anxious to team up with somebody because of a lot of uncertainty and everything else. And I think a lot of firms either did deals that they didn't have as much opportunity to really get their arms around or held back and are doing deals now. We're seeing pricing going up quite a bit from already high levels. And I think some of that is a function of, okay, here we go back to hopefully a normal environment. Some of that is interest rates and leverage capability. And some of that is just, okay, now I got to put some money to work. So that was a benefit of the multi-year outbound targeted search. That's how it is supposed to work. But again, we miss a lot of deals. Even we find the 20-foot pole vaulter and they don't choose us or someone else pays more or we just, for whatever reason, don't get there. So we have to be working really hard in all these areas at all times because who knows a year or two from now which of these subsectors are going to be really attractive. So if we're not working on them now, we won't be ready two, four, six years from now. What do you find are maybe common characteristics that are no doubt subtle, but that compare, say, the 20-foot pole vaulter from the 18.5 to 19 to 19.5-foot pole vaulter? Well, I'm not sure we can be that fine, certainly from the 12 and 16-footer. Obviously, passion, commitment, humility. Many of these folks have lived in their world their whole life, and they just know it inside and out. If you ask them to run another business, they're not Six Sigma GE trained people who can go from light bulbs to jet engines. They don't want to. They're in their world and they know their world cold. So number one, they have enormous domain expertise. Number two, they've got a tremendous passion. Number three, they have a team around them who they respect and work closely with who want to follow them. Number four, they're almost always very customer-centric. What does my customer want? Not what do I want to give them? How do I serve them? So those are characteristics. And again, if you're out there and you've met all the people and you've been to the conferences and you're walking down the aisles in Orlando or Las Vegas and everybody's saying hi to you because you've been doing it for years and there aren't lots of private equity people at these conventions. It isn't hard when you see that great team that's got a buzz, they got a vibe, they, there's a mojo going on and you call their customers and we know all their customers because that's the world we're in. And they say, oh, we love these folks. They are so great. And then you find out who they're looking to get as new customers and we can help them with a warm introduction. And we often will do that before we even have a chance to invest. We try to help people before, and then they'll come to us and say, you know, you've been very helpful. You get my business. You know the jargon. I don't have to have a 1.0 conversation with you. I really enjoy working with you. I think you respect what I built. I want you to be my partner. That's nirvana for us. Hopefully no banker, hopefully no auction. But even when there is a banker in an auction, we tend to get the owner-operator to choose us, and that gives us a big advantage. It won't get a deal for <laughs> half price or anything like that, but it does give us the chance to do the deals we want to do very often. I'm curious about this cross-section with knowing all these subsectors cold and the owner-operator and this classic question of which matters more, the industry or the management team. How do you balance being in the right place with being with the top executive? That's a very good question. 20-foot pole vaulters, if the business isn't as good as we hoped, they'll figure out 
how to succeed. And we've got examples of that with people that plan A didn't work, plan B didn't work. They hung in there. We got a great result. If the management team is not special, our fault, not theirs, we're the ones that judge them as special. Then we've got to manage that and figure out how to make it work for everybody involved. There are sectors that you need to stay away from. And financial services is a pretty dangerous space. We divide the world in several ways. But one of the ways we divide the world is capital intensive businesses versus free cash flow businesses. And a capital intensive business would be a bank, an insurance underwriting firm, a big credit platform. And a free cash flow business would be an insurance broker, a third party administrator, an asset manager, an adjudicator. And we will do free cash flow businesses often through thick and thin, through ups and downs, because if they are the best in their sector and they're providing necessary products to their clients, they're going to be okay over a seven, 10 year period. And if we get into them and we don't put too much leverage on them and they really are the 20 foot pole vaulter in the space, we'll be okay. We have to be very careful when we get into capital intensive businesses. So as an example, we didn't do a bank deal for seven or eight years before the credit crisis. And we spent more time, I think, than any other firm in the banking sector during those seven or eight years. But it just didn't make sense. These banks were selling at three or four times book. And then in the final couple of years before the global financial crisis, we were wondering what the quality of that book value was. And so we waited, 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 but we were doing all the work and we were doing all the reps. Then the credit crisis hit. And the first thing you do in those situations, we call it the catch a falling knife scenario, is get out of the way. So we watched the banking system crash. And then we stepped in, working closely with regulators. We got de novo charters for the biggest bank startups in the history of the United States. We got into banks that didn't have a lot of legacy problems. We got the regulators to support us, and we had the owner-operators ready to go. So as an example, Florida was a mess. There were 31 banks in Florida of any consequence that weren't owned by City Bank of America or someone from out of state. We called on 29 of those 31 banks. Every one of them was technically insolvent. Their liabilities were greater than the fair market value of their assets. We didn't want to invest in any of them. However, there was a management team that had sold their bank for 3.2 times book to an Ohio bank, and they're sitting at home twiddling their thumbs. And so Mike Brown was the guy's name. We found Mike Brown through this massive effort. And again, this is one state in one sector of all the things we're doing. And Chris Duty was the guy who was really leading it. And we went to the regulators and we said, we want to back Mike Brown, but it's very tough to get a charter. It's very tough to get on the approved list to do failed banks and to get law sharing. We want to put some capital in there and help resolve the Florida banking crisis. And the regulators said to us, you back Mike Brown, you'll go to the top of the failed bank list in the state of Florida because he ran a camel one rated bank. We love him and we're happy to support you. So we set up a bank with Mike. We bought a couple of banks to get charters quickly. We merged some businesses, built the company, and we did the same thing in Texas. And that bank ended up buying banks in Colorado. We did the same thing in California, and they ended up going to Arizona. We did the same thing in the Carolinas. They went to Virginia. So we did more bank deals than anyone after the crisis in the United States, having done none for the eight years before. So you have to be ready to pounce. And the only way to do that, I ran a lot of marathons. And I tell the team here, when the gun goes off at the start of the race, the race is basically over. What you did or didn't do the last six months is going to dictate what happens in the next two to four hours. So we have to be ready to take our sweats off and run a race tomorrow. And you can't do that if you're not training for it. So that's why our slow twitch muscle multi-year proactive outbound targeted search is so important. Now, we're not doing a lot of bank deals now, but we are ready if and when the banking system needs capital 
and you're compelled and you're paid fairly for the risk to do that. So the answer to your question is, it really depends on the cyclicality. We're not clairvoyant. We can't see around corners, but we do know when risks feel like they're getting underpriced. And right now, people are going out the risk spectrum. And the more risk you've taken the last few years, the better you've done. At some point, that's going to turn around. And right now, most of the things you invest in that have asset intensity to them, you're not really being paid adequately for the risk you're taking. You're getting bailed out by this wonderful flow of funds coming out of the fiscal and monetary policy of the government. At some point, that ends. And then what are you left with? So we're staying away from risk bearing, but we're doing a lot of work on it. We're meeting with the management teams. We're getting ready to set up and go after that market when it compels us to do so. In the meantime, we're doing a lot of free cash flow, high value added service businesses, backing 20 foot pole vaulters who have high retention rates, recurring revenue, high margins, and no real capital intensity and a lot of free cash flow. What do you do after you've bought a business when you, you know you've backed or you believe you've backed the 20 foot pole vaulter? How do you engage with them as the owner, minority, majority owner of their business? Obviously, the first thing you do is try to work out what you're going to do if and when you partner up before you partner up. And again, having the opportunity to really know these folks ahead of time, hopefully you have an agreement before you get married and find out things that you wish you'd known ahead of time. So we're very aligned with them. We want them to have a lot of skin in the game. We want them to make a lot of money. We want them to be at risk with our investors. And we will sit down with them either before or right after the closing and develop kind of a 100-day plan. We don't put operating executives in. We don't sit next to them and micromanage the business. If they are a 20-foot pole vaulter, they don't want us or need us to do that. We have to be right that they're really good. We don't tend to replace management teams. We don't tend to micromanage and really get involved in the day-to-day activities of the business. That's not really our model. And when we've made mistakes, and of the 150 deals we've done in over 20 years, we have made a handful of mistakes. We have a very low loss ratio because of the great owner-operators we backed. Our job is to find them, convince them to let us be their partner, and then to help them any way we can, which sometimes means getting out of the way. So we have high-touch investments. We have low-touch investments. And you try to work that out ahead of time. And we try to help these companies grow and succeed. We want them waking up in the morning thinking about how to buy, how to build, how to spend, how to grow, how to acquire, not how to cut costs, pay down debt, and financial alchemy your way to success. We try to build houses of stone, hence the name Stone Point Capital, not houses of straw. We didn't want to be straw point capital. And if you look at the businesses that we've had the privilege of owning, they have done extraordinarily well, almost without exception, after we have moved on and then the next buyer did really well because the management teams were very aligned with us. Let's build a real business here, a solid business, a solid platform. One of the formulas we've used successfully is if we have a good platform and if we got the best management team, we can tuck in smaller businesses in a lot of these fragmented spaces. So our companies have done three or 400 tuck-unders in the last three or four years, and they did 60 or 70 of them during COVID. And those tend to buy down your multiple. They tend to have a lot of synergies. They tend to bring added management talent, customers, diversification. Those are great things to do. So Our job is to help them any way we can. Sometimes we bring the tuck hunters and negotiate them and price them. Sometimes they do. We let them do whatever they want to do. We help them any way we can. We introduce them to customers. We help them with capital structure. We help them with hiring people. We try to be strategic sounding board. And again, it really depends on what they want or need. And if you asked every one of the 65 or 70 owner operators that we're in business with today, I think it'd give you slightly different stories about what we do. 
because we're not going into a company and saying, this will be your comp plan. This is the way you'll work. This is the form you'll fill out every month. This is the people you'll use for A, B, and C. It's their company. We support them. And it doesn't matter that we are a majority owner. We report to them. We want to help them any way we can. So when you've gone through this long process of all of this research on these subsectors, identifying the 20-foot pole vaulter, getting a deal done with them, working with them, figuring out what they need, how in the world do you think about exit strategy? That's a toughie. One of the things you learn along the way about investing is don't fall in love. Don't be passionate. Don't lead with your heart. Lead with your brain. And I am definitely flawed in that regard. I do fall in love with these people, and so do a lot of people here at Stone Point. That's something we have to control because these people just are the reason we're here, we're the reason we're successful. We live vicariously through their successes and their businesses, and we love them. And saying goodbye is brutal. We tend to hold longer than most firms. We have moved firms from one fund to another, which is challenging, but our investors have been supportive of us doing that. We're very excited about the new technology of continuation funds and the like, because at some point a company reaches a point where maybe you can't get a compounded return going forward, and therefore you really owe it to your investors to do a monetization. But a lot of times these companies have a lot of legs left, and we want to own them longer rather than shorter. But what we tell our investors when they ask us, what's the exit strategy going in? This is not meant to be a glib comment, but if this business succeeds, there'll be lots of exit alternatives. If this business does not succeed, all the things we tell you today about how wonderful the exit options will be are not going to be there. Obviously, we're very focused on what strategics want to buy. Right now, private equity firms are very competitive with strategics. So businesses that are leverageable, people will put a lot more leverage often on businesses than we will. People often will adjust EBITDA in ways that are quite creative. So there's a lot of money out there, and there's a lot of buying interest in private equity and in strategic land. So exits right now are pretty prevalent. We have a number of companies that we're selling right now that we would rather hold, but it's just the prices are so compelling. We just feel that that's the right thing to do. And the owner operators support that because they have so much skin in the game that they like the opportunity to have a monetization as well. But exits are tough for us. We would rather be Warren Buffett who buys things forever, but our model is flawed in the sense that we can't own things forever. I'd be remiss if I didn't turn this knowledge and expertise that you have on financial services to the asset management sector, clearly one of the sectors or subsectors, and to ask how you think about StonePoint as a business in terms of what you've done beyond just one private equity fund after the next. It's a great question, and we love asset management. And frankly, in 1998, when we joined Marsha McLennan, they owned and we owned Putnam, and Putnam had a preemptive right on any asset manager so we really weren't able to do asset management deals until we spun out in 0405. Since then, we've done more than a dozen. And we're a great place for somebody who is really good at some asset investing capability. So when you're Graham Goldsmith and you're really good at stressed and distressed debt, and you're Nick Weber and you're really good at European real estate equity, and you're Greg White, and you're really good at first lien mortgage asset management fixed income. If you want to own your own business, it's very tough to hang a shingle now and say, hi, I'm Dineker saying I'm Eric Mindich, give me $5 billion. Those days are pretty numbered. There's very few people that can do that. There's lots of places to go the big firms where you can run that sleeve for them, but you're really working for Blackstone, KKR, Goldman Sachs, whomever. And those are great platforms and they can help you in a lot of ways. But if you want it to be your firm with your name on the door where you have meaningful ownership, we are a good partner because we'll help you with 
everything from office space to technology to compliance to getting a prime brokerage relationship, registering with the SEC, and raising money. And we'll own the firm with you. So we own between 15 and 85%. I say we being the Trident funds and our LPs, between 15 and 85% of about 15 asset managers who are growing and succeeding, who have really special skills in that little area. And those businesses have been very successful, partly because the owner operator is a 20 foot pole vaulter in that sector. And he or she wants their own company with their own name and their own team and their own investment process. We don't sit on those investment committees by and large. We do help them any way they want us to help them. And that's been a very successful strategy. So now they're bringing us more really talented asset managers. And our funnel is very great for those deals. And it's a wonderful asset for the Trident funds to have in our toolkit. That'd be fun to tell the story of one of those, of someone that you worked with that I certainly know well, a certain Todd Combs today of Berkshire Hathaway, and maybe walk through how you came to back Todd and what all happened. Todd Combs is a uniquely talented individual in many respects. He was very well trained to be an investor, particularly in financial services, although at Berkshire Hathaway, he's way broader than that. And we discovered back 20 plus years ago, this process was building cumulative knowledge here and information, much of which we couldn't act on because we only had a private equity firm. So one sector would be massively overpriced, but they were publicly traded and we couldn't short them and couldn't act on that knowledge. Another company we thought was ready to triple in the next three or four or five years because of their position, but they were publicly traded, didn't want or need capital, and we couldn't invest in them. So we spent a few years and dozens of interviews looking for someone who could do in the public markets what we were doing in the private markets. And when we found Todd, he in many ways was perfect because he had worked for the Florida banking department, studying bank fraud in Florida with the FBI. So he knew the banking system and the regulatory process very well. He had worked at Progressive, which I was and still am on the board of. So I met him and he was in the pricing department and Progressive is probably the most sophisticated insurance underwriting company in the world. So he was trained on insurance underwriting. He then studied value investing at Columbia Business School, and he was working inside of a hedge fund. So he really, in many ways, was perfect for what we were looking for. He was 32 years old. He didn't have a brand. He does now. And so setting up his own shop was not necessarily pragmatic for him. We couldn't do it without him. We helped him raise money. We set him up with office space and helped him any way we could. But he did all the investing and made all the decisions. And it was a wonderful marriage in Castle Point. Everything here, we try to put a point on. The next company will come along. We'll call it, what's the point? But <laughs> Castle Point was very successful for seven years. Todd sat on our floor and ran a great business. And then along came Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett, and hard to argue that Todd wasn't a great fit for them and they weren't a great fit for him. He's an extremely talented fellow. I'm curious how you thought about your business. There's a lot of different firms have different types of ownership structures. We've talked to people in this mini-series that are public companies, that have sold significant stakes, that are private. What's been the evolution of your thinking about the business today and where StonePoint goes in the next five or 10 years? Well, certainly since the spin out in 0405, where we owned the business and had complete control over our destiny for good or bad, every decision we've made has been made with the motive of what's in the best long-term interests of StonePoint and how do we bring in young people and give them the same opportunity that we have all had over the last 20 years. And as you know, that gets harder and harder 
And at Goldman, there was always a view in the 70s and 80s and 90s. Oh, I missed it. What a great record year. By the time I get there, it'll be gone. It'll be over. Well, it, it didn't end at Goldman. It just got better and better and better and better for years and years. We hope that Stone Point can continue to evolve and succeed. We have been growing linearly. So our funds have gotten bigger in kind of a straight line. And our team has gotten bigger in kind of a straight line. We tend to handpick people right out of the Wall Street training programs and really invest heavily in them. And they invest in us. And they end up staying and becoming permanent members of our team. And the turnover here has been almost zero after the two-year associate program. So in terms of ownership, responsibility, leadership, share of the carry, et cetera, we hope and expect that that's going to continue to grow and succeed. The bigger you get, the harder that is. The more people you have, the more it's difficult to be an individualistic firm where you really know and care deeply about every single person. But that's certainly the motive. This is, to me, a family, and the Stone Point Capital family really is built to last through generations. And we are all very hopeful that this firm is going to succeed and be here 10, 20, 30, 40 years from now. To do that, we have to grow. And to do that, we have to give the opportunities to the 25, 35, and 45-year-olds that those of us that were here in the beginning have had. So you had the experience at Goldman of it being the full private partnership, which in many ways has changed since it went public, I don't know, 20 years ago now. I imagine lots of people come knocking on your door these days to buy a stake in Stone Point. How have you thought about that over the years? Well, we're flattered anytime anybody wants to talk to us. Having said that, the team here really is happy with themselves and with each other. And we constantly discuss this type of thing. And we really want to control our own destiny. And we don't want other people at the table other than the people here that are evolving and moving up the ranks. And we are very carefully and thoughtfully bringing more and more people into the management, into the leadership, into the ownership of the firm, into the economic upside of the firm because we want this to be all of our firm, not just the senior people's firm. And that transition is challenging and takes time. So we're very hopeful that the people in this firm will be here forever. Will The firm will continue to share ownership, responsibility, leadership, management, and everyone will get challenged and given the opportunity to be as successful as their skills and their talents allow them to be. Well, Chuck, I want to take a, a chance to ask you a couple of closing questions. What is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? I just love athletics and sports and sweating, <laughs> perspiring. So that used to be running marathons, and now it's maybe going for a nice walk. But whatever the activity is, whether it's skiing or golf or tennis or jogging or walking or going out on a boat and maybe water skiing and feeling the breeze in the air, I find that to be really invigorating. And one difficult thing about working as intensely as you do is, although you can walk around and get up from your chair, it's not a very physically taxing <laughs> business. So I try to get as much exercise as I can, and I really enjoy that because I just feel... I don't have the runner's high I once had, <laughs> and I come back a little slower than I used to, but it's just great to feel your heart pounding and breathing heavily. What's your most important daily habit? That's also evolved. I would say now I am very much a mindfulness person. I don't think that's meditation in a traditional sense, but I have this thing I go through where I just take time for myself and it's usually 20 or 30 minutes where I go someplace really quiet and I tune out and I just let my mind 
kind of relax and wander and I try to breathe slowly and kind of see what comes out of that. And I find that's really invigorating. I'm energized by it. And I usually come out of that with something going on in my head that wasn't there before. And I can't really quantify it. I don't think of it as, okay, let's come up with a great idea. It's just the opposite. Cleanse your mind, empty your head, let it flow. And I find that to be a very valuable and relaxing thing to do. What's your biggest pet peeve? I just think life is full of ups and downs and challenges. But people that wake up in the morning and say the glass is half full are just fortunate people. I just really feel badly for people that the glass is half empty and woe is me and everything's awful and everyone else is to blame. And I know we all go through difficult things in our lives, but it's not what happens to you. It's how you react to it. And you just got to figure out how to move on. And some things are difficult and hard to move on from. And I certainly respect and am empathetic with that. But take advantage of the wonderful gifts you've been given and the joys of the people around you and make the most of it. How about on the investment side? What's your biggest investment pet peeve? We're big at Stone Point on everyone speaking their mind. And we do not want people to be what I would call head bobbers. You look and see what the senior people want, where they're leaning, and you bob your head that way. We want people that make an independent judgment and aren't afraid to disagree even with the most senior people here who are hard to disagree with because they're hard-headed and stubborn and have a view and it's usually something they feel pretty strongly about. We like to argue. We try to disagree without being disagreeable and we want young people to speak up and we want them to tell us what they think and we want them to give us their vibe check on a deal, one to 10, would you do this deal or not? I'd say the biggest pet peeve around here is feel comfortable speaking your mind. Do your homework, have a well thought out opinion, or don't get in over your head, but do speak your mind. Which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life? Wow. I could list 50 people that went out of their way to help me if you had to say two, I would say, without a doubt, my father, for reasons I could take you through way beyond what we talked about before. And I'd say the other one, Steve Friedman, who was a role model at Goldman Sachs and has been a tremendous partner and friend to me. And I've now worked with him for 46 years. And I'd have to say he's had more influence on my business career than anyone with the exception of my father. What's the biggest mistake you've made and what did you learn from it? <laughs> How much time have you got? <laughs> I would say as a general comment to that, because I could give you a lot of specific deal mistakes and decision mistakes, is I really believe that happiness and being comfortable with who you are and where you are is the key to life. And you want to be a journey person, not a destiny person. And I've had a tendency over the years to say, you know, when I get that deal done next month, I'm going to be ecstatic. When we raise that fund in three months, I'm going to be ecstatic. When we close this, when we do that, and always waiting for the satisfaction of the deal ahead, as opposed to, wow, look at where we are right now. Be happy with that. Enjoy the process of getting that deal done. Don't wait. Don't hold back gratification, happiness, satisfaction for the moment that it transacts. Enjoy it along the way. And I am much better at that than I used to be, but I'm still a delayed gratification person because we all know once you get there, that's not that gratifying. The gratification is the process along the way. And it's similar to running a marathon where you really have to enjoy the training and the running in the rain and the, all the things you have to go through, not just the, ah, I'm on the finish line. So I'd say that's the biggest mistake that I have made and that I continue to make is just not living in the moment. 
not appreciating just how fortunate we all are to work with each other and have the privileges we all have. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? As one of four kids, I would say unconditional love. They loved us through thick and thin. And man, we made some bonehead decisions along the way. <laughs> I, I would take more than 25% of the, <laughs> of the blame for that, of the four of us. They loved us unconditionally, no matter what. And there's something about having parents that love you unconditionally and aren't saying, oh, you didn't get an A, so I'm holding back my love for you, or you got cut from that team, or you didn't do this or that right. That just wasn't the way we were brought up. We were brought up by the most loving mother and a very demanding father, but two people that were with you through thick and thin. By the way, my siblings were with me through thick and thin. I've always tried to be there for them, and same with my family today. I just think unconditional love is an unquantifiable gift that you can give to another human being. All right, Chuck, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? I think it's living in the moment. It's just enjoying the benefits of everything that you've had in life. When you get sick, when you get a headache, when you don't feel well, you promise yourself, when I'm feeling fine again, I'm going to appreciate it. Then you feel fine and you don't appreciate it. And you feel fine for the next four months and you just take it for granted. And then you get a cold or a headache or something happens to you. And then you go back into that, boy, when I get out of this little thing, I'm going to appreciate feeling good again. So I just think it's all about really living in the moment and loving and appreciating. You know, not everybody got all the gifts and benefits that you got and I got. And that's not because of anything but dumb luck on our part. And to not appreciate that and to not give back and to not really also be empathetic to people that don't have that. I wish I'd been more empathetic and understanding to all that. Chuck, thanks so much for taking the time. Good to be with you, Ted. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one, and see you next time. 